I have never seen sort of human animal relationships like the ones I've seen doing street bit. And obviously, you know, you do see bonded clients and, you know, in practice and everything else, but there's nothing quite like somebody who will not go inside because they don't want to leave their dog, who won't go into a hospital because even though they really need to go to a hospital because they won't leave their dog. Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Jade Statt, co-founder of Street Vet, a charity caring for the pets of homeless people across the UK. Jade graduated from Glasgow University Vet School with honours in 2002 and initially worked as an assistant in small animal practice where her innate desire to help others spurred her on to compile and write the pocketbook of small animal tips for vets, a book she donated to raise funds for veterinary mental health and well-being charity VetLife. Her own struggles with depression led to her serving on the board of VetLife for three years before finding her true calling one evening on the way back from a night out in London. Stopping to speak with a homeless man, Jade came to realise the importance of pets to homeless people. But it was also apparent that the vet care and support that we might take for granted was non-existent for those living on the streets with pets. An idea was born and soon after she took to the streets of London with a backpack stuffed with medicines, food, toys, collars and leads and a desire to help. Not long after, she met her co-founder Sam Joseph, who by happy coincidence was doing something similar and Street Vet was born. Since then, Street Vet has grown rapidly with teams active in 17 locations across the UK and an army of volunteers more than 700 strong. Jade, in her role as co-founder and ambassador for the charity, is a tireless advocate, taking on many of the other issues that result in increased homelessness, such as lack of available pet-friendly temporary accommodation, and has successfully launched a service of accreditation and training for hostels who wish to change. In 2019, her incredible work was duly recognised as she was announced as the Animal Star Awards Vet of the Year. Now, oftentimes we'll have an advert here, but today our only ask is that you take a second to visit streetvet.org.uk and see what you can do to help. If you're a vet or a nurse in the UK, then you can volunteer your time. And if you're a practice owner, you might like to work as a partner practice for operations. Whatever you are, if you can find your way to donate £10 or dollars to support Street Vet online, then you'd be putting some spare cash to extremely good use. Now back to the show. Jade is incredibly passionate about veterinary mental health and the benefits of volunteering, and her work is tested to the power of both purpose and collaboration. The tireless dedication that both she and her army of volunteers put into protecting the bond between human and animal and the most vulnerable of people is incredibly inspiring. A timely reminder when many things seem hopeless that the power of caring for others really is a gift that gives in both directions. So now, without further ado, I present this, my conversation, with the pretty darn awesome Dr. Jade Statt. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jade Statt. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you here. I feel like this is, we can't really do subtitles with a podcast, but I do feel like they might be warranted. I'm looking forward to getting off this and then sounding more Scottish because I've had like a proper period of time talking to someone Scottish. It definitely brings it out. Okay. This wasn't on my list of questions, but I feel like it is actually probably a really good start point. So there's two things that I find bring out my Scottishness more. One is obviously speaking to other Scottish people. I see by the end of this is <laughs> the other thing is drinking alcohol. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, or getting angry. Do you find like you're more Scottish when you're angry? Oh, it depends how angry. 
I mean, my original at some point nickname was Braveheart. So I get quite Scottish when I'm angry. So be warned. I'm not going to make you angry deliberately. <laughs> part of me, and whether it's a deeply flawed part of my character, just wants to see what happens. Yeah. If I get really angry, I get quieter. So I probably get less Scottish. There's a peak Scottishness. Yeah, like peak yeah. Scottishness. Usually whilst watching sport, particularly if it's Scottish sport. <laughs> yes, I can. Let's agree. not. Let's just not talk about that. Let's no, just let's not. Agree. Okay, so the question I was going to ask you there actually is: Do you find I f- I find my accent tracks very strongly to the people I hang out with the most, and I pick up bits of accents quite badly, which gives me this hideously jacked up transatlantic <laughs> mid-atlantic accent i don't really i don't really pick up accents but i definitely like if i speak to some of my friends from school i get my kind of very very newton Merrin's glaswegian twang back so my mum can always tell who i've spoken to on the phone based on which of my friends from school i've spoken to so yeah i guess that definitely happens but anger and drink i would say <laughs> are two contributing factors right so the accent and just for the record, we're doing neither. We're neither angry yeah. nor drinking right now. So, great. okay, that'd be another podcast. That'd be a great podcast. We're gonna get drunk and get angry. Scottish people, yeah. Scottish people getting drunk and angry. I know that every American listening now wants us to do the. Can Scottish people say this? Yeah, honestly, have, have you favorite. done that? Oh, what is the phrase? I can't remember. The well, phrase. they won't need to say there's been a murder. Always. Oh, that always. Yeah, always. murder. Yeah. You know, we could just sit here saying murder that for would, like yeah. an hour. I swear to God, to get the best listening stats ever. <laughs> There's a phrase on YouTube, and it's they do videos of Scottish people saying a phrase, and it's purple something or others. Well, I don't know that. I just always get asked about, yeah, there's been okay, a I'm, I'm literally going to Google it just now, and we'll, we'll edit yeah. out the gap. Okay, go for it. I'm going to show you on the screen what it is because if I say it, it'll ruin, yeah, it'll ruin, ruin it. Ruin it. It'll ruin it. Right? Can you can you see that or is that backwards? No, I can see it. <laughs> Purple burglar alarm. <laughs> I think I don't know if you got the middle one right. What? Purple burglar alarm. That was better. That was better. <laughs> I think honestly, I think if we play that first effort back in slow mo. <laughs> I think that was a subtle fail. Like, I think you clipped the top of that fence. <laughs> I mean, purple burglar. <laughs> purple burglar alarm. Yeah. Easy. Easy. Okay, we can put that one to bed. Yeah. Done. Scottish okay. people can, in fact, say purple burglar alarm, America. <laughs> Get over it. It's stupid. <laughs> right, let's talk about something a lot more sensible. This is perhaps the most random start to the podcast ever. Good. Which like I love. Random. Absolutely. Right. So, Jed, some time ago, you started, a, a long time ago in a galaxy far away. Yeah. You started this little thing from an idea, and I want to learn an awful lot more about it. I think the listeners are going to enjoy hearing about this. But I want to read out, and you can tell me if this is right or not. But in our research, we found that your ultimate goal for Street Vet was you want their to never be a situation where someone is asked to choose a roof, you know, between their a roof over their head and their dog, whether that's rough sleeping, trying to get into rental accommodation or needing hospital care. Is that accurate? I would say like that has been something that's developed as 
street vet has because yep. I had absolutely no idea, hadn't even entered my head to think about what the situation was for people in the street as to whether having a pet was a barrier to them accessing services. So the first kind of street vet sort of, I guess, creation was all about vet care and providing vet care by helping the animal, helping the person. And then from as we've been doing street fair for a while, it became a lot more at the forefront of our minds because we were talking to our clients and they were like, yeah, you know, if I'm offered a a place, they say I can have it, but I have to give up my dog. And then if they do that, this is the worst bit, is if they're offered a room and they say no because they don't want to give up their pet, they get deemed voluntarily homeless. So basically they're kind of lower down on the pile because they've been offered a room and they've they've rejected it. So, you know, that was the point where I was like, what? Like voluntarily homeless, that's crazy. You're not voluntarily homeless. You're just not willing to give up your pet. That's not the same thing at all. So yeah, it was always from about, once we got to know our clients and, and this was kept coming up, it was just in my head. I'll be completely honest. It was absolutely not planned as another project or anything like that. And then there was this competition that we, I found out on a, on a Friday in LinkedIn that you could apply for the Better With Pets prize if you had a project that enhanced the human-animal bond. And I was like, let's do this. So that was Friday. It had to be in by Monday. So, yeah, me and quite a few of the the others all kind of got our heads together. Because the idea, we'd been talking about it, but we just hadn't really created anything yeah, so that's when we were like, right, let's see what we can do using the information and the resources that we've developed with StreetVet to help hostels feel comfortable saying yes to pets. I really want to explore that a bit more. And it's, this is what I, I love about it. This is so much beyond just helping animal welfare. And indeed, it sort of encapsulates you know, that phrase, the human-animal bond, that that's a symbiotic relationship that we have with with the beasts. But I want to go back in the timeline just to where did this all start? How did it all start? You know, you're working in in general practice. You graduate from Glasgow. We overlapped in Glasgow briefly. Did we? We did. I I, I was a bit of a swap. Yeah, I definitely was not in that category. (laughs) Yeah, I was always, yeah, panicking and studying and, yeah. Okay, maybe we didn't overlap. Like, that meant you were in the university library occasionally, which... (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't, but, no, that's that's unfair to me in the university library. But yeah, no, you, you started in '97, right? Yeah, I graduated two thousand and two. Cool, and I graduated in '98, so mm. we overlapped just briefly. The best vet school in the world, obviously. obviously. So go back then to the start of the street vet journey, and I'm actually I'm almost kind of interested to go back. I go for that question first. The start of street vet. I'm also wondering. Just is there anything further up, upstream of that? Often when I speak to my guests, there's something happens further upstream that really flows and it's like different bits of life start weaving together. Or is it just complete randomness that you end up going down this path? So maybe talk to the street vet start. I'm just curious about the influences in your career as you as you have sort of, you know, become a vet, influenced into veterinary medicine. You know, are there dots to be joined there? I guess yeah, I mean, if I start thinking about it, they probably will. But yeah, I mean, my introduction to street vet was more about probably if you take it right back, more about 
sort of my relationship with my own pets. So most people know because I do talk about this quite a bit. So I used to be a director in vet life and I got involved with that as I think probably quite a lot of the profession do is when they've experienced something themselves from a mental health point of view. So that was my journey to getting involved with vet life. Okay, so can I pause on that there? Yeah, cool. If you're willing to share. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy. It doesn't bother me. Okay. You know, what was your experience? Because I, you know, I love to, you know, just flip the lid on what we all experience in veterinary medicine to an extent. Yeah. Also, big US audience for the podcast, vet life probably doesn't mean a lot to them. So, you know, brilliant organization, brilliant charity. Perhaps you could talk just uh, a little bit about vet life. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I suffered and I guess I still suffer, but thankfully not for a while with recurrent depressive disorder. So I had probably an fairly severe bout of depression and I was off work for about six months and then as I sort of came out of that and was sort of re-evaluating what I was doing and and where I was at as anyone in the vet fear likes to do we like to wonder why did that happen to me so I started to look at you know why do vets get this you know more mental health than others why you know is more females than men I remember phoning my mum because it was like I'm female, I'm a vet, and I'm Jewish. And all of those things were like contributing factors. And I was like, well, I was screwed. But yeah, so I started looking into it. And then I was like, well, what help's available? Like, what can I do? And I guess that's the part of my personality that has always been there is like, if I see something, and especially if it's affected me directly, I feel very strongly about wanting to do something to fix it. So yeah, I did this same it's all a bit random, really. I got in touch with somebody from VetLife, um, Nick Short, who sadly is not with us now, but he was just the most incredible man I've ever met. And he introduced me to VetLife, which is the UK organisation for supporting mental health in the veterinary profession. So be it like email or also on the phone, 24 helpline. And I was just like, this has happened to me. Like, why are we not talking about it more why are we not doing more about it and this was back when vet life wasn't called vet life it was called the veterinary benevolent fund it had a very different kind of connotation and people maybe didn't know enough about it yeah. in the way that they they do now and yeah we kind of went on the road with a with a play at that point which was practice imperfect i don't know if you ever saw it but it was basically about the actors and you could watch the play and you could tell them to stop at different points when you could change how the actual story was going because it was ultimately about uh, vet and practice and what they were experiencing and what could lead them um, down certain routes. So, so I got involved with that and then I started to probably, I'm not saying I was the only person, but certainly not many people were willing to sit on a panel and talk about their own mental health. And I remember people being like, why are you doing that? That's career suicide. Like, you really shouldn't be talking about it. And I was just like, from my point of view, if somebody doesn't want to hire me because I've had mental health problems, I don't want to work for them. So done. Right. Tells you about the values. What year is this, Jed? Oh, it's before Street Vet. So Street Vet was 2016. Yep. So I, I reckon 2011, 2012. Yeah, so I um, started speaking on panels and then I wrote the, it was good fun, actually, a book of small tips and um, the top tips for small animal vets pocketbook thing. And that was to raise money for then the VBF. And then I became a like a trustee on the board. 
And I did that for three years. And that was when the whole transition to being a bit more relevant was happening. And we were rebranding and, you know, really trying to reach the profession and educate in a different way. And I mean, I think what's happened in that, you know, area of veterinary medicine has been quite transformative, actually, since then. It's quite normal for people to talk about what's going on with them and and to talk about all these things a lot more openly and Mind Matters Initiative and everything's moved on, I I think, a lot in the UK. Yeah, it's incredible just even hearing it was that recent a thing where people were saying, you know, don't do it. It's still very taboo. So it's kind of a bit of a a positive reality check to sort of... Yeah, no, it's really... Actually, it's okay to talk about this stuff now. It's good that we are. I'm kind of, I realize I'm diverting you away from the start point. So don't don't lose the start point of the question. But mentors, people who influence our careers are are so important, whether they're role models or mentors or something like that. And you just spoke very warmly about Nick Short. I call people my veterinary heroes. It sounds like perhaps Nick was a veterinary hero to you. Could you tell me a bit more about, you know, that relationship and, you know, the best human being that you've sort of encountered. That's some pretty big praise. Yeah. So, no, I met Nick. So, I mean, I was pretty, yeah, I'd never spoken to anyone about my mental health before. And then I just phoned this man who I found through connecting when I was looking up vet life. And he just like took about, I don't know, I must have been on the phone to him for like an hour and a half. Just never met me, didn't know who the heck I was. And I, he was just so patient and so like sort of listening to everything I was saying and then from there yeah it just sort of snowballed into us working together we worked together on the play we worked together on the book and then you know he put me forward to being on vet life board and then yeah like when I first plucked street bit out of thin air as it were you know he was the guy like that I contacted and was like this sounds a bit mental (laughs) but I'd quite like to do this and again he was just one of those people that, yeah, just had just this amazingly wise words for you always. And yeah, I just absolutely, yeah, I really adored him. And he just had a really wonderful sort of energy, really, I guess is the best way to describe him. And yeah, so he helped me with Street Vet. He was always around for me to be like, okay, what am I doing? I'm in this like world. I don't know what I'm doing. I think I've bitten off too much, you know, help me. And, you know, equally, you know, we both had issues with our mental health. And so if he was having a moment, then he would call me and vice versa. So, yeah, he's someone that did so much for the profession, not just like from a a vet life point of view. But, you know, he was such an amazing mentor for so many students um, that used to come to him and he helped them. He was working at the Royal Vet College. So, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, Nick was definitely a real sort of guiding person in my journey to street vet definitely thank you for sharing that about him wheeling back then to sort of the the germination point of street (laughs) vet and thinking back into those other you know those formative experiences so why did it all kick off what was the moment where you thought this is where I want to go you're struggling with mental health actually a little bit curious about you know that formative thing I said there's a back question there and I wonder if it's a question that applies to lots of us in veterinary medicine, because it sometimes my observation. So here's a thesis. Go on. Shoot to pieces. We get into veterinary medicine, and when I observe the work you're doing, I observe 
purpose, really, really clear purpose. But when I look around at lots of our colleagues in the profession, I see people working to what they thought was their purpose, which was to be a vet, but they're actually working within somebody else's vision of what purpose is. And perhaps it's actually not terribly well aligned with what their version of helping animals or contributing to veterinary medicine is. Is there something in there that there's almost, you know, if you're just showing up and you're grinding through it, there's almost a futility, a hopelessness. How can you ever get through it all? It's it's never ending. I wonder if more of us were working to a clearer purpose, whether that would help us professionally as a, as a group yeah. to re-energize. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of our volunteers, when we speak to them or they, you know, send us stuff to say um, why they volunteer, you know, I've had lots of, you know, just random contacts with people saying I was done with this profession. I'd lost any kind of connection with it, lost my values. And now, you know, I've actually feel passionate and reignited about doing it again. So, yeah, I think absolutely, you know, when, you know, why do we do veterinary medicine for a lot of us in the first place is we want to help animals and help the person that owns that animal. And sometimes in the you know, the busyness of it all and everything else, you kind of lose that connection with the whole thing because it's you're so busy or, you know, money's playing a factor, insurance, time, all these things are not a concern when it comes to street vet. There's other things that you have to think about, but, you know, that actual part of it is removed. And I think that you're just a person helping an animal. That, for a lot of people, is something that they've really missed. It's taken away that sort of the unseen bit, the commercial bit, the transactional nature of of yeah. the interaction. Yeah. So in effect, it's a purer form of veterinary medicine that you've distilled yeah. or alchemized in some way, but very purpose connected. Okay. So why? I, this is there's so many layers to this, Jade. Yeah. This is, I don't know if you're sort of getting it to, but okay. Germination point. Where does it all start? It started because we obviously talked about my mental health and me being unwell. And during that time, you know, it was my dog. My dog was the only thing I could be connected to. I just permanently walked. All I wanted to do was just not be. And I think obviously a lot of people will find that pandemic, COVID, all of a sudden they're alone, but they've got their pet. And that um, relationship is, has been sort of shone a light on, I guess. But yeah, so for me, yeah, Oakley was... Poor Sam, um, I like to call Oakley the third co-founder of Streetbit. But yeah, for me, it was my relationship with him that made me really, when I, so I had a chance encounter with this guy in London, in Soho. Um, in 2016, I was out with my mates and I always stop and talk to people with dogs and particularly, you know, anyone who is experiencing homelessness. And I was chatting to him and at that time, Oakley had been diagnosed with cancer and I knew that you know you start the pre-grieving process don't you and I knew that there was nothing that I was going to be able to do and I guess yeah talking to him he just that kind of helplessness was exactly how he felt but yet what he needed help with was so easy to fix and his dog just had sore skin that was it just really itchy um sort of infected skin and and I just was like what what do you do like where do you go and it was at that moment I was like, you know, how have I walked around as a vet, all this, you know, walking past people, and I've never stopped to actually question where do they take their animals if they need vet care? So, yeah, I walked away just thinking in a typical Scottish way, I want to do something about this, and I was pretty determined. But, yeah, it was definitely 
that mirroring point with how I was feeling about Oakley. All I kept thinking about, what would I do if that was Oakley? And what would, you know, he's not got the resources. Like he's trying to just, you know, find out where he can sleep every day, what he can eat every day. You know, he's just surviving. And then on top of that, the most important thing that's probably keeping him alive is his connection with his dog. And now his dog's not okay. And he feels like just you know, just clearly not good enough because he couldn't help his dog. And I was just like, you know, that is not okay. So, yeah, and also because it was so, you know, you know yourself, you've got what you need in your bag, I could have just helped him. And I just was like, right, you know, how do I align these things? And then we were talking about serendipity um, earlier, but I had a friend of mine who knew that I wanted to do something in this space, but I didn't really kind of know how and she said there's a guy called Joshua Coombs and he has a movement called do something for nothing where he's a barber he goes out in the street and he cuts homeless people's hair and he was asking for other people to give back their skills so I was like right screw it so I emailed him and I was like I want to do what you do so I met him for a coffee and yeah Josh is one of the most inspirational people he's amazing and he just kind of you know all the things like I guess as a vet we're very like you know I like to catastrophize and think about all the worst things that could happen and how I need to make sure that everything's okay <laughs> oh yeah was, yeah we love a catastrophize jump on that ghost trade yeah and he just was like yeah let's do it and I was like okay it's not quite as easy as that he's like okay but we can do it so then I went off and had a lot of meetings as you can imagine you know with the insurance with the VMD with RCVS and just tried to kind of make it that this could work. Yeah, the first time I went out in the street was with Josh. So he was cutting homeless people's hair and I was looking at the dogs. But what he had quite a social media following and I'll never forget this. I I mean, I wanted to kill him, but they were out filming him and I I wasn't involved. I was just sorting out the dog. And then the next minute he was just like, Jade, if you get in that car, you're going to do ITV News Live. And I was just like, excuse me, what? Honestly, if you watch it back, it's embarrassing. I'm just like, um, um. So, yeah. And then that snowballed it because obviously people saw it and people were like, okay, I've got a few hours spare. I can do this. And then everything. And then it just, yeah, kind of, I met Sam, obviously, who I didn't know. And we joined forces and Street Vet became a not-for-profit in April 2017 and then we became a charity in January 2019. Brilliant. Tell me a bit more about Sam. How does that meeting happen? Really random again, the love of social media. So yeah, someone contacted me and was like, "Eh, someone else is calling themselves Street Vet and I was like, what? (laughs) So I looked him up on Facebook and I was just like, who is this guy? So I messaged him and yeah, we've just met. Oh, I totally want to know, was that message passive aggressive or was it full on? Or was... I think we were both like peacocking around like this. Was, like you know... side-eyeing each other. <laughs> this is like my thing. No, this is my thing. But actually we got on super well, which is great. And yeah, we just were like, well, we both want to help. We can do it. We can do it together. So yeah, so Sam now sits on the board of Street Vet because He's younger than me, so I was the one that stepped out of practice and he stayed. He's doing, you know, more specialised stuff now because he's doing, I think he's doing cardiology now. And yeah, and I just sort of, I left practice just over two years ago to do Street Bet full time. And I've now gone back to practice one day a week because I miss it. 
This is really interesting. There's so much to explore in here, Jade. So, okay, I'm curious about how you see yourself, right? Because one could argue, and this information may be now slightly out of date because the research was done a little while ago, not too far ago. (laughs) But you have 650 vets engaged in some way, shape or form with Street Vet, correct? But out of date because the pandemic hit us pretty hard like it did I think a lot of charities so we've now done like a a proper audit of our active volunteers yep so the ones that we've actually got because we had to get everybody to re-sign COVID safety requirements we've got about 350 volunteers that have signed up and are active okay so yeah all right 16 locations still 17 okay so more (laughs) streamlined I like it and all of that growth over a period of five years. So effectively, one could say you're the CEO of an organization employing <laughs> sort of 350 vets in 17 locations. That's a pretty big deal when you put it like that from a standing start of a random meeting in Soho in a very short space of time. I'm curious, I want to dig into the phases of that journey, but how do you see yourself? I did for a very long time see myself like completely out of my depth and almost just like winging it constantly winging it I would say in the last year and a half we've had some other so I've stopped being the sole person in street vet so I now have other people with the skills that I really don't have (laughs) because basically I mean if if you were to put street vet on a piece of paper at the beginning like we just had like some whatsapp groups and no real proper I mean we had the processes in place with the VMD and and the insurance and all the things like that but in terms of you know any kind of structure so that if I got run over by a bus tomorrow um it wouldn't all just be like in my head that is a very recent improvement so by taking on we've got um well I've got an MD now I've got an ops manager and we've got a digital marketing apprentice and we've also just last week hired um a hostel coordinator so I've gone from, I've now got, you know, more people that know what they're doing, whereas before I would just be winging or like asking for a lot of support from, I mean, loads of amazing people. But as you yeah. can imagine, when you're getting support from people voluntarily, it's hard because obviously they're doing it in their own time. It's ephemeral. It drifts. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of curious then. So you've you've got the start. You've had this idea. You You've had the giving each other the whale eye with James and you, you sort of now building this and the word, the word I think that I've seen uh, is collaboration. This is, this is one almighty collaboration that's happened, but tell me how it gets traction. Like what did you do next? So what I did next was I just started phoning around charities to see if they wanted to get involved just so happened that someone at the Blue Cross who answered the phone was like, this sounds really interesting. Let's chat further. So I went in and at the beginning, they were, I guess, the registered practice for street vets. So that's where the medication was under their you know, ownership and they were doing the, the out of hours. But as I guess with anything, I'm, you know, it was growing so quickly. We were getting people wanting to do it in all, like this was obviously just London, And I was like, well, we can't grow where we want to if we're under this, just the Blue Cross with under um, their eye of ours. So it was almost, yeah, I kind of had to 
work out a way in which street vet could be autonomous and responsible you know as individual little practices and it was then we were like right okay so if it doesn't work that we are almost like I don't want to call it a parasite, but a parasite in the Blue Cross. like A, a, uh, a symbiote. <laughs> a symbiote of the Blue Cross. How can we do it that we can replicate? Because my problem was I'm very impatient. And obviously the Blue Cross, you know, it's a, you know they've got processes, they've got boards, course, you yeah. know, all of that. And I was just like, you know, I want to do this like yesterday. So it became apparent that in order for me to, to do that, I would need to basically be we would need to be a separate entity so that was when it was like right okay what do I need to do to do that okay I need to provide our own IRS cover everywhere that we are I need to make sure that the VMD you know we had meetings with them to say right how do we actually do this because we don't have any premises we're going to be like mobile so that was how we then went had meetings with them and then trying to get insurance was not easy I mean from the veterinary defense you know liability that was fine but in terms of employee insurance and that kind of thing, as soon as you said, you know, public medication, dogs, street, they were like, no, thanks. So at one point, I thought we were going to have to give up on the whole thing because we couldn't get anyone to insure us. Is that just a misunderstanding of risk by on the insurers? Do you know what? I think it was just like, it's such an unknown risk because no yeah. one's ever done it, you know, in their mind. And they were like, that's just, there's so many things in their mind that could go wrong. But that's we, you know, we've not had any issues with that. So I think we had an article in the Vet Times quite early on, and then yeah, people just started contacting um, to to want to do it. So two of my like original volunteers is is Gabriel Galea and Anna Manoli, and they've been yeah, just like the backbone, sort of behind the scenes, and they've been helping always. Really, it's been the weirdest weirdest most extreme journey of my <laughs> my life but you know to think that I was at vet school and I wanted to be a vet and, and I love being a vet and now I would say I spend most of my time doing relationship building and interviews and media and collaboration just permanently lots and lots of, of collaboration and yeah it's just not what you would ever have thought or I ever intended to do so I'm kind of curious what a day in your life looks like but before we kind of go to that so lots of different ways we can go from here go how many animals and i'm going to say families i think that's probably their family right homeless person and animal do you have a a sort of lexicon that you you use different organizations describe pet owners some say clients some say well again ours are owners aim and Mm. then street vet clients really Yeah. yeah okay how many clients a day or a year nationally now, do you treat? So I actually should have looked up the figures before coming on the phone to do this. But, you know, in terms of consultations, um, we're probably, I mean, I, that was a wee while ago. So it's definitely over 5,000 consultations we've done. We've got over 1,200 dogs registered with us. I've got a couple of rabbits, some rats, a ferret, and a bearded dragon. I'm trying to remember how many cats we've got, but it's about 80% dogs, basically. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that makes sense. So just jumping back, there was one bit of one question that I'd, we sort of kept getting diverted away from. And I wonder, for people who don't kind of get Scotland, it's a small place. 
almost everyone has a chip on their shoulder about something, <laughs> mostly because it's a small place and we're rubbish at sport. <laughs> it's a place that, as I've travelled around the world, it's noticeable that it's significantly more community-minded, caring, socialist. There's definitely more of a sort of we-look-after-each-other vibe in Scotland, possibly with the exception of certain football sporting events <laughs> that sort of exists. And, and the viewpoint that we have in the world is, I think, certainly more social-leaning. Is that part of you know, what you do now is such a massively socially supportive project for very, very vulnerable people, not just vulnerable, but people who've fallen probably past the point of vulnerability and life's hit them like a freight train. You know, is that part of the mission of helping people? Like you always used to go speak to homeless people, as a matter of fact. Glaswegians are just known for being, <laughs> talking the hind legs off a donkey. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually forgot that I did this, but in my project at school, we, it was modern studies and we had to do something, um, we had to pick a project and I had forgotten I did this, but I picked a project about the big issue and how many of the big issue sellers had dogs and I went out and interviewed them and I honestly had forgot, I did that, I must have been like 14 maybe when I did that. So I guess maybe somewhere in my psyche there was an acknowledgement of you know, how important these dogs were to these people because I I stood and interviewed them about it. But yeah, I I did, did notice you... such a difference coming t- to London from Scotland. Like the difference in, you know, like my brother like broke his ankle and no one helped him in London. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a real, you know, everyone's on a mission. Massive morass of busy humanity, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's quite... I mean, my mum came down to visit. Oh, my God. And, like, I was taking her into London, and we got to, like, the tube bit. You know, you're putting your ticket in. And she was like, hi, I'm going to London. This is my daughter. And I was like, mum, he doesn't care. Please stop speaking to people. Just go, 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 go. Um, I think nothing causes greater pileups in London than a Glaswegian there, a Glaswegian in the subway. Yeah. My mom, I was like, mum, he doesn't care that you're here to visit me. He doesn't care who you are. He just cares that you move. And she was just like, oh, this isn't very nice here, is it? But then we're on the tube and she just randomly started to speak to someone and they looked like, firstly, obviously scared. And then secondly, they were loving it. Like they were all chatting away by the time we got off the train. And I was just like, you know what? It is so different. It is a really different, and we kind of learned from living here to, to not do it anymore, which I think is really sad. I love seeing a humanity grenade going off on the tube. Something happens and people suddenly melt and the facade disappears and now they're yeah. just people. And then, but it, the ripple of non-humanity moves out afterwards very quickly and oh everyone God. just shuts yeah. down again. Straight back, straight back to book, earphones. Not no, at making no eye, contact. eye contact. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious about what you learned from that project as you know, the 14 year old Jade. Do you remember any of the things you learned from it? I'm trying to, I would love, I actually, I bet my mum's kept it because that's what my mum's like. She probably would have. But I remember as, but again, it's different in Scotland. And I know we've just touched on this, but like, you know, I would say as a homeless person or someone experiencing homeless in London, your interaction with the public is so different. Whereas I think in Scotland, everybody does, would talk to you. You know, I don't think you'd be in a situation if you were standing there selling a big issue with a dog that you wouldn't be spoken to. So I guess I didn't feel remotely, um, I remember just like 
enjoying having chats with these guys and just thinking they were just had such interesting lives and interesting stories. And then when I came to London and I started doing Street Vet, and I remember this quite clearly, I had, for whatever reason, that same naivety that I could just bowl over to someone and, you know, offer my help and it would all be, you know, lovely. And it's not to say that the people weren't grateful. They were just not expecting it. And so therefore, you know, the guards went up. They were like, you know, I don't need your help. I'm looking after my dog fighting. Like, you know, like very like concerned that I was judging them. And really like, what's your agenda? Why are you here? Because I think there's a real, real difference in the interactions. And And I think you would probably, if we were to kind of line up the different street vet locations it would probably be very different again you know we've got a team in in Glasgow we've got a team in Aberdeen and then we've got a team in Swansea but for the London team certainly when I started it helped me that I had Josh because they a lot of these clients already knew Josh so there was that association and that's when we realized actually you know going up to people with a backpack on is probably not the best way to do it. And that's when we started to join up with soup kitchens and outreach teams so that the trust Mm -hmm. was starting to build rather than you just um, doing this random introduction to people who, you know, for all you know, haven't spoken to someone in days. And then there you are offering help. And, And it's not always easy to accept help either. And so, yeah, I was really naive very naive at the beginning and and maybe that came from (laughs) my other interactions with people in Scotland I suppose. Two questions now I'd really love to hear about some of the I'd love to hear about some of the best stories or or the most impactful stories of and it may be that they're not good stories yeah I'd love to hear about some of the things that you've done that have made the biggest impact on you and then I'd actually just love to hear a bit about how you've grown as a as a person it's fascinating to me the the observation of oh, I'm just going to go out there and just help and actually having an introdu- a sideways introduction from somebody they already trusted was a much better door in coming at the problem from the side rather than head on just seems like there's quite a good metaphor for <laughs> how we might solve many of life's problems yeah it stuck out to me there that we're not always very good at accepting help so that again geez there's so yeah. many ways I think the other thing that's that you know I've noticed through doing street bit is as well as people you know needing to understand that you are reliable you're going to turn up when you say you're going to turn up and I think that you know the demographic of society that we're trying to help have in essence feel very let down by society in general but also don't trust anybody of authority and are very wary also obviously quite a lot of our clients have got quite severe mental health issues which either have led them to where they are or have developed as a result of being in the situation that they're in but yeah it's more the public like the public interaction can be I guess I've never thought about it because I always talk to people you know but I, I won't forget this one I was um I was talking to this guy with his dog and the dog was quite old and we were chatting and these members of the public were driving well, driving past walking past and they turned around and they were just like has he done something to his dog? And I, I was just ignoring them. Um, and I was content. And they were like, has he hurt his dog? What's he done to his dog? So I turned around and I was like, he's not done anything to his dog. I'm a vet. This dog's registered with us. It's probably checked more than most people's dogs because it sees us all the time. And they were like, well, how old is the dog? And I was like, well, how about you ask the owner and not me? Like he's sitting right there. And then they didn't. They continued to talk to me. 
And then they were like, well, what happens when it needs to be put to sleep? What are you going to do? You're going to do that on the street. And I just turned around and I was like, I, I have no interest in talking to you anymore. Like, and I was just like, I just don't understand that. Like, it's almost like there's just this wall that you can't actually communicate with the person whose animal it is because what? It's a bizarre thing that I've seen just so many times um, when we're on the ground, you know, guttling about helping. They come to you to ask questions about the animal, but they don't ask the person who actually owns them. It's as if, like, they don't trust the responses or they're too scared. I don't know what it is. Like, like almost they're, they've just been so dehumanised that yeah. they're invisible to an extent. But that must be how it feels to a certain extent. Yeah, our clients say that a lot. Like if we have their dogs in for an operation or something, one of my clients, he's got a big Akita, beautiful. Um, And he's like, when you took Kane from me that day, he said, no one spoke to me. He said I was invisible. He said, but as soon as I get him back, everybody talks to me. Yeah. So You can see why. And and certainly I, I remember being at vet school and being, guilty of judging people for having pets and what did that mean for the animals but you know you, you live and learn and you can just see and, and boy we've all had a taste of isolation in the last 18 months yeah. how massively important things you know all forms of connection are but man if that's your only form of connection that's that's a pretty big deal what are the stories of you know, maybe just the stories that you've encountered, but also the impacts that you've made that that leave the lasting impressions with you from the work you do. I don't know. There's different forms they take, I suppose. Like, you know, it can be from the vets and the nurses that say, you know, thanks for doing this. Like, this has helped me mentally. It's helped me find a purpose again. And that, I, I didn't expect that at all. Like, so when that started to happen, I was like, oh, you know like other people needed this like I wanted to do this but actually in the UK this is something that I discovered wasn't that readily available you know to be able to volunteer here and and give a bit of your time back in a way that was risk-free for your professional qualifications and everything else but yeah I mean I've just met some incredible people and whether that's people in this journey that I'm doing stuff with so like people like Josh or you know our actual clients but yeah, I have never seen sort of human-animal relationships like the ones I've seen doing street bit. And obviously, you know, you do see bonded clients and, you know, in practice and everything else, but there's nothing quite like somebody who will not go inside because they don't want to leave their dog, who won't go into a hospital because even though they really need to go to a hospital because they won't leave their dog, and who... You know, I don't think you see it as much probably in like London, but, you know, who will forgo their food because they're, you know, they'll give it to their dog. So, you know, that is things that we see on a regular basis. And it does make you think like when you have and obviously we've had lots of judgment conversations with people like, you know, if you, you know, if you're homeless, that's your choice, but you shouldn't put your dog in that situation. Or, you know, why should a homeless person have a dog if you can't look after yourself? Did it? all that. And and I'll be honest, like, I don't know what I thought before Street Bit, because I clearly didn't think about a lot of things. Like, I didn't think about where they go to get back here. I didn't think about, you know, getting into housing and stuff like that. So I don't know that it ever crossed my mind where the dogs came from and whether they just, like, acquired them or... And it's only, again, when you start having the conversations, like, these people, most of the dogs we treat are geriatric. You know, they've been in these people's lives for a long time, be it 
before they were homeless and they now have kept their dog with them or they've like found them. Um, I have one guy that fished them out of the canal. We've got another client who, I mean, his story is amazing. And if, if anyone, like he had 90 million views on uh, Facebook, he spoke for Street Vet, but he bought his dog for 12 pounds um, the last day he got out of prison and he's never been back in prison again. And now he doesn't take drugs and, yeah, the stories are amazing and there's so many of them. But sometimes Street Vet helps in just such small ways. It's not about the big life-saving op. It's the it's the microchipping or, you know, we had a client of ours literally last week who his dog got stolen. He got jumped and his dog got stolen. So he phoned me and we worked with Dogs Lost. We put a poster together. It went all over the place. Obviously, we'd microchipped the dog. And the next day, the police got the dog back for him. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, that's just a small, I mean, it's not a small thing, but it's a small act that we've done that made a massive difference to him. But equally, I mean, there's the story of the dog that got hit by the train. She's one that we talk about quite a lot because that one, for me, when that happened, it was the moment when it was a bit like, oh, this works. Like what I've done works in that, you know, the owner knew what to do because he had the out of errors number on her tag. So she she got spooked. She ran out on, I mean, he now knows to keep her on a lead, but they sometimes don't. Ran out onto the track. She got hit by a train. He phoned the out of errors number. You know, we were working with a vet practice at the time. The RSPCA got involved to help us because we helped work with them too. And basically all the kind of arms of collaboration all kind of came together. Then the team, because they knew him so well, because they used to see them every week, you know, we're talking to him all the time and showing him videos because obviously he'd never been separated from his dog for that. I mean, she was away, I think, probably two weeks, three weeks. Wow. So she lost an eye and she had to have her leg amputated. But yeah, she's awesome. So she's called Belle. She's actually on one of our Christmas cards this year. But, you know, it was at that point that I was like, okay, fundamentally, if we didn't exist, that dog would be dead. It's moments like that when you're like, you actually start to think what would have happened before. And I don't really know what would have happened before. I guess you just would have been just distraught. Like, I don't know. You know, I read somewhere and, and perhaps, you know, I think it's important to humanize people as much as possible. Right. But I read one of the, one of the clients you have, you know, their dog was, they had the dog and they lost their family in a car accident. Am I here? Did I read that correctly? Yeah. You know, and the dog's the only thing, yeah, from that time, yeah. It's unimaginable pain to start with. I mean, I, I, you just, I'm sure any of us who've got family or children, people that you love, you know, to have that happen and your whole world just changes in a heartbeat to have that one thing, you know, that is such impactful work to do that. It really does. It gives you pause to think about a lot of aspects of our lives, really, Jane. How about you? How have you grown? Eh, I can now use a computer a lot better than I used to. <laughs> I swear to God, like, at one point they were like, Jade, you cannot run a charity with these skills. Like, we need to sort you out. So I'm not joking. I have to have, like, computer lessons. Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, the bit that I was always the most nervous about and that I don't – I like speaking, clearly. And I'm happy talking about street vet, being asked any questions about street vet, but I don't really like standing up in front of loads of people and talking. And that's something, you know, I have to do now. Like that's part of part of what street vet's about. So I feel like I've definitely 
kind of overcome some of that kind of stuff. But I think the main thing has has been about being able to believe in something enough that like everyone's like, but you so you just go up and you ask people to help Street Vet and, and do all the and I'm like, yeah, because I believe in it. Like I really you know, I couldn't go up and ask for somebody for free stuff for me or for you know, but with Street Vet, no, I, I have I'm like literally shameless. Like I have no <laughs> You know, I just like, guys, like, can we have that for free? Can you do this? Can you do that? And the beauty of Street Vet, I think you kind of touched on it, is it is about collaboration. It is the bit, I mean, I did a talk at Bastia asked me to speak about collaboration because that's, in essence, what we are. Like, we would be nothing if it wasn't for, obviously, all the volunteers, the public are amazing, but the industry, the venue profession, the pet industry have just, like, embraced it in such a way that has made it possible for us to do what we've done in such a short period of time. And for that, that's been something that I've found really heartwarming because I guess there have been, I'm not going to say it's been plain sailing, it has not. There have been times where I've been like, oh my God, charity's not a nice place to be. I thought everyone was going to be Mother Teresa. And then you get into the situation and there are people who maybe are not got the right agenda or, you know, a bit more competitive about this. And and that's been quite hard because I... I'm not a very, I'm quite a trusting person um, and I'm not very sceptical. I've become more sceptical because, you know, at the end of the day, what I want to protect more than anything is is street bit and what we're trying to achieve. So, yeah, but mostly it's been, I've met some incredible people and people that, you know, are doing so many amazing things. And I've seen a really amazing side to the profession and I've seen a completely new like, as we all talk about your vet passport, but like, I never thought, like, as a vet, I could be doing all the things that I'm doing now because it, it just wouldn't even have entered into entered into my mind. But now, you know, speaking to other organisations in France and, you know, Australia and, you know, trying to kind of do something to kind of help in, in that wider way is, yeah, it's just, like, mind-blowing sometimes. You sound like you're not done with street fair. <laughs> And also it sounds like you're, there's a sort of joined upness, not just to your thinking and the way the organization is, but it sounds like perhaps there's a, a different or a new mission that may be evolving out of this. What is that? I do love a mission. Um, no. Well, I mean, I guess for me and for Street Vet, the, the hostel scheme is something that I feel like we, you know, because at the beginning we always get asked by people. So whenever you apply for funding and things, people obviously want to know KPIs they want to know what your your numbers are your outcomes and some of the things was like how many people do you get off the street and I was like well we don't do that you know that's not what we do and I think the volunteers find that really hard as well that was one of the main we did a, a survey with the volunteers and they said the thing that they find the hardest about street vet is how helpless they feel and that's because let's be honest we are all fixers. We love to fix. Um, as vets, we like solutions. Vet nurses, we want to, you know, make things better. And I think that they were finding it really frustrating that the bit that they were doing was just a little bit, and then they were just yeah. still walking away. And probably getting very invested in the people Absolutely. that they were interacting with. hundred percent. And then, because you see them every week, you know, at right. one and point, you, you know. You walk away back to your nice warm bed. And, and leave and them a, in the snow. A cup of food. Yeah, yeah. I can see that hurting. You know, so that kind of led on to this, like, okay, how can Street Vet help to actually get them off the street? So that's the bit that I am super excited about. And I've had to kind of, we've had to halt it a bit because of the pandemic and because we just, 
I'm definitely the kind of person that runs away and does it all, like wants to do everything yesterday. And actually, it's just not how it's done. And that's the beauty of having other people <laughs> to like, you know, help to just kind of say like that, we want it to be a success and we want it to be a sustainable success. So we have accredited like one and a half hostels, but we have now got a grant um, to employ a hostel coordinator. So she started like last Monday and her job is now that we've got someone who's dedicated to it to now start promoting it and rolling it out and getting hostels onto the scheme, which, yeah, amazing if we could do it. You're going to have to engage with government, law, you know, are you influencing lobbying government? I guess there's just so many different ways this whole thing's gone. I've always kind of said, and I guess this is from me quite personally, I find that kind of, that's more frustrating for me because I like quick change. Like I want to go out and do the stuff that I know that I can do. Yeah. But we, you know, we've engaged with like Jasmine's Law and we've also been engaged. There's a new sort of, thing coming through government at the moment where they're trying to get damages insurance that people get so therefore they can get into accommodation with pets so in all honesty like everything's connected so the fact people can't get into rental accommodation with their pet may mean they end up homeless but equally if we get people into a homeless hostel they'll never leave if they can't get into rented accommodation with their pet so you know I feel as much as I don't really you know we're not a political charity yeah from our point of view, we want to back, you know, and support anyone that is doing work to improve that. But, but yeah, I can see, again, never my intention, but I can see that now that we've created the scheme, if we can show that it's successful, it will obviously lead to reduction in rough sleeping because people are will be able to come inside with their pay. But also, I think what certainly the hostel that we have accredited is seeing is that you know, from their own fundraising, PR, you know, they are getting more support because they are an accredited hostel um, and they're taking pets. I have no trouble seeing that how, you know, affiliating with Street Vet adds a completely different dimension to the public perception of what the British public are helping, you know, and animals play such a keen part of that. So it's just such a an influential part of the whole it's not social care it's fallen out the bottom of social care but but social support tapestry for want of a better phrase it's endlessly fascinating and i just love the fact that it's all born from a, a place of struggle that you've endured and work with to discover a passion to re-energize yourself in the work that you do the work that is a, a chunk of veterinary medicine to the point where you you're doing a little bit in practice yourself. What did you miss and, and uh, why did you go back? I'm just curious about that. Um, because I guess like, I mean, I, I don't get to outreach that much. So put the backpack on, actually do the outreaching. And I just, I miss the animals. I really do. And obviously, I mean, in coronavirus, it's worse. You don't actually see any people either. So you're just on your, on your Zoom. But yeah, I mean, I genuinely, I love being a vet. I love all of it. And so you know, it was really hard to make the decision to leave, but someone, one of us had to do it um, and it wasn't appropriate for Sam to do it, yep. you know, so it made more sense for me because I've been a vet for longer. It's a different stage in my career. So, but it was always done with the mindset that I would go back. 
I also think like being in practice is really important because I'm the clinical director of street vet now. So from a clinical point of view, I do think it's really important. You know, we need to know about all the new drugs that are coming out so I can go and pester the drug companies and, you know, work out like the things that will be useful to be in the backpack and all that kind of stuff. But it was mainly because I genuinely missed being a vet. Coronavirus has obviously tossed so many cards up in the air. I wonder what you see from your perspective on the profession and society, which I feel like are, you know, it's not glib just to say that there's been a lot of support for people, but there's also a lot of jobs that are just not there anymore. Yeah. I mean, we had calls from people who were uh, a, a young guy who was in events and he's now living in a boat and homeless because just his work disappeared. You know, he's got pets that he can't support now. But I mean, I just think in, in general, all the charities are just at breaking point. And what you start seeing from that is obviously people are trying to get help anywhere. So, you know, we're getting a lot of people contacting us that maybe are not eligible for our support, but they can't get into the places that maybe they do need support from just because everybody is is really over and well under resourced and there's just too much, too many people that need help. So that's been hard. We had never really had that before. So street vet, as we sort of mentioned, is very much if you're in the community, you know about street vet rather than it being, you know, there's we don't have a phone number. You know, it's not that kind of a charity, mainly because we don't have the resources for that. But also because um, that's how we assess eligibility is with our own eyes, like on the street with the outreach teams. But we are now, you know, starting to get contacts from people all over the place um, and outreach teams in different locations where we don't exist asking for support. And as and when hopefully the, the hostel scheme um, becomes, gets a bit of momentum, you know, that can be a hostel anywhere in the UK. It doesn't have to be where we have a team. So any animal that's registered in, like, as a resident of that hostel will be getting the street vet care. Um, so they'll be registered, they'll get food delivered, they get toys and all that kind of stuff. They get a telemedicine platform, you know, it, it's all built in. But the biggest thing is like just training people to be comfortable working around dogs. Because I think that's the biggest thing is they get it almost just not forced on them. But the next thing they know, there's someone with a dog in their hostel and they're like, well, what the heck? Like, I don't know anything about dogs. Like, what happens if he collapses? What happens if he gets arrested? What happens if, you know, the dog's ill? That's what we're trying to build is just basically you don't need to worry about all that. We've got that, you know, and then it means that they can actually maybe enjoy having dogs in their hostels and, and the you know, we all know what they do for your well-being and, and everything else. But, yeah, got to one step at a time. <laughs> it can't be underestimated. I mean, it's it's massive work, It just but it just can't be underestimated, the difference. Like that, I went into my office today and um, one of my team had, brought her dog in for the first time it's the first time we actually had a dog in our office and I, I wasn't expecting it all and then just just this ball of tail wagging energy with a tennis ball in its mouth came crashing out the front it's like what the it's just brilliant it's just brilliant to have around these animals okay so I'm conscious of time and you are a very busy human being so I don't want to take up all of your afternoon but so let's maybe move on to the shorter form Possibly slightly sillier questions. Possibly not. Depends on you. <laughs> short questions don't have to be short answers. Okay. So, number one, and actually, this is a new one. I've never asked anyone this one before. Well, you've not asked anyone to say purple burglar alarm either. 
Oh, you nailed that. I know. I've totally been like, digging my hands. Yeah. I wondered if that's exactly <laughs> what's been going on. You looked a little distracted some of the time yeah. when I was like, purple, purple, purple yeah. alarm. 100%. Purple. <laughs> I tell you, we should quit whilst we're ahead there, Jade. I know. Aside from this interview, yes. what is the best memory from your career? Oh, I want to say something more poignant, but I think I'm actually going to say the very first Street Vet conference that we put on because it was just looking around the room and there's just all these people there who are all there for the same, we're all like got that same value. And like Ebony described it as like, it's like a little bit of bottle magic. And that's what it kind of, without sounding really cheesy, sort of felt like, like everybody's happy and engaged and, you know, just really part of something bigger. And everyone was sitting there with their like, hoodies on and you know I was just like sitting in the corner like looking at it and it just felt like weird yeah but yeah really surreal yeah really surreal but that moment where you're like you know like people had to put post-it notes at the back and about why they got involved with street fit and like I'm walking past them and a few were like because Jade made me um but you know there were some other more poignant ones and you're just like wow like this is actually a thing so yeah that was a kind of clarity moment, I think, for me. It was the first Street Bank conference. Okay. What is the app or tool you cannot be without? Ooh. God, it's all Street Bank related. It's not very exciting. It would be like ProVet or Salesforce because I have to like look up all my work on it. And that when I'm out on the street, I have to be able to, yeah, not that I get to go on the street that much anymore, but access the, the data so I can see what clients were treating. Really not exciting. I wish I had a better answer. Okay. What's the most impactful or your favorite book that you've read that you like to recommend to others? Oh, like my most impactful book, like, is the one that made me want to be a vet. I mean, no one's going to want to read it now, but maybe they could read it to their kids. It's Virginia Vale and it's Animal Inn. I'm writing it down. What age group is this for? I was like probably 10. I see my daughter's eight. Well, no, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't really, I, but it depends if you want her to be a vet. That's another question. But yeah, Virginia Vale, Animal Inn, and it's about a girl whose dad's a vet and all um, the stories with him. And I just, that was it for me. I was seeing practice at the age of 12 and I was done. I'd made my mind up. That's what I wanted to do. There you go. I don't mind what she is for the record as long yeah. as she is happy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, what is the best advice you have ever received? What's for you won't go by you. That's a good Scottish one, that one. Yeah, that was my grandma. Every time anything happened and I felt like, you know, I'd missed out, she would just be like, what's for you won't go by you. And I'd be like, okay. So, yeah, I've definitely done things a bit later in life to other people. Like, I literally got married a minute ago. Um, (laughs) I've not had kids yet, but I'd like to. I'm 41 so yeah, I kind of feel like my life has happened a bit later than I thought, but clearly, I don't know, I believe in things are meant to happen for a reason and I obviously feel like I was meant to do street bit. So if everything else got postponed a little bit, then then that was a worthwhile reason, I guess. Yeah, what's for you won't go by you, you're living it. <laughs> uh, so what was the worst piece of advice you've ever received? Don't do street bit. <laughs> Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I guess, to be honest, it was probably coming, it was coming from a place where people were probably a bit worried about me because obviously I had been unwell and they were a bit like, do you really need to take this on? Like, you know, what are you doing? And 
anyone that knows me knows me well enough to know, like, don't tell me not to do it. I will do it anyway and probably definitely just ignore you. So, yeah, there was a lot of people who didn't think street bet was a good idea. And I don't mean in the sense of the concept, but just that it was too much for me to take on. But as I do with most things I've got my heart set on, I I, I ignored them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Stubborn to a fault. That's me. <laughs> I was going to ask you if it was you that was giving you that bad piece of advice because people do don't they like we'll have an idea and then then the rot will set in about all the reasons why we'll fail yeah I probably wasn't thinking honestly I don't really think I thought about myself that much and I don't mean that in a selfless way like I was just like you know I want to do this and I, and people are like oh, were you frightened you know you're not worried going out you know on your own with a backpack on and and I think I don't know just it just did not occur to me. And I just, you know, my family were worried. I mean, they put a GPS tracker in my backpack that I didn't know about. Yeah. But, you know, and even when people do ask that now, like, are you ever frightened? I mean, I don't outreach as much as everyone else now. But, you know, my experience was always that the people, that the clients we got to know wanted to look after us because this was a service that they needed and they wanted and they liked so if ever there was any trouble or people were kicking off, they were like, you know, trying to move us, like, don't touch the street vets, you know, like moving us, you know, out of the way. And and equally, you know, we get lovely emails. Like I spoke to a guy the other day who were using his dog um, on a Christmas card and he's now off the street. The dog is back being a working collie. Um, that was one Nick Bacon saved its life. It had a bilateral perineal hernia with his bladder in it. And, you know, he's just like, lovely and just in contact and and again a bit like what you said before it's not really yes we help the dog but by helping the dog and someone like Nick Bacon taking time out of his life and everybody opening the surgery on a Sunday and as all he was like you're doing all this for me you know and it's that kind of notion that actually yeah we are you are valued and and you're worth something you matter significance that people can then attach themselves yeah. must be very very inspiring or energizing, or I don't, I don't think either of those words are the right words, but I think you probably get my drift. So if you had to give yourself a piece of advice back at graduation, you're under the cloisters of that famous ancient spire back on Gilmore Hill in Glasgow. There's loads of things I kind of wish I'd done. Like I wish I'd done an internship and I wish at one point I did a certificate, but if I had to take myself back to university, it would be don't work so far bloody hard and nearly did a bad swear word because you know it, it's not changed my career in any way you know I got honours and I probably worked my ass off to get them well I know I did but there's no if anything I remember my first boss said to me you know I put anyone with honours in the no pile like before I've even interviewed them and I was like brilliant thanks for that so I think I would definitely at my university me I would have definitely said to work less hard my graduated me I really wish I'd done more essentially backwards, but more charity work. Like I wish I'd done more because it's taken till now for me to have the time to do that kind of stuff. And yeah, I really wish that I'd had a chance to to kind of go abroad and, and do more kind of charity work and, and learn a bit more about the charity and shelter section because it would kind of help me now. I love this. Jen, I could talk to you for ages. Closing remarks, is there anything we've not talked about that's just, actually it's really important we do talk about it, or is there any... Is there a message you'd like to leave with the listeners? No, I mean, I think, you know, my 
my bottom line is always, you know, just trying to get people if they do see someone to stop and talk to them. And I know, you know, it's not an original thing to say. It's not a new thing at all. But I've spoken to so many people who have maybe reached out to somebody homeless once and didn't get the response that they felt that they should have got and have then almost allowed themselves to never do it again because that person was rude or that person didn't say thank you or, you know, whatever. And I think it's just like, you know, starting to try and flip that around and people to think, you know, what, you know, we all have not very nice days. And sometimes, you know, I remember speaking to a guy and he had like 20 cups of coffee next to him. And he was like, I don't drink coffee. And you're like, but nobody asked you, did they? They just assumed and did that. And and that's where people start to get offended when people don't want what they're giving. Whereas actually what he actually really would have liked is for you to ask him how he was or what he wanted or even just to have a conversation. And I think that that's probably the biggest thing that Streetbit has taught me is, you know, the power of talking like and, and actually understanding and giving people time to trust you to tell you what's going on with them. But yeah, I hope through Streetbit, like a lot of what we try to do is to try and get people to see see past that and we're looking at doing a documentary at the moment and I've been approached a lot over the years of people wanting to do certain things with Streetbit and I'm fairly dogmatic as I think you've probably gathered about the kind of thing that Streetbit we would want to make versus you know what quite a lot of people would like to make which is a lot more voyeuristic and you know just not what we want and so what we want to make is something where you it's not about the owners they're speaking 100 percent. i don't want them on camera at all because for me homelessness is something that should be just like a part of their journey because hopefully in a while they won't be anymore and i don't want them to always feel like that was something that defined them or has been captured because it's the, the worst part of their life most likely and why would you want that on tv and i know we have done tv stuff we have and you know i won't shy away from that but I'm really, really quite particular now about the clients that will do it because I've had bad experiences doing it. Um, but I've also, yeah, just kind of feel really strongly that if you want to, what I want people to do is learn about homelessness through a channel that maybe they will engage with more, which is the dogs, the dogs and the volunteers and the veterinary profession, because then it's a different way to engage with something that people are ultimately frightened of. And maybe they're more frightened of it now than they've ever been because, you know, there's more people that are becoming homeless because who saw a pandemic coming? Absolutely. I'm not out of questions, but we're <laughs> out of time. Jed, I just want to say, you know, it's there's so much I like about the work you do. Thank you. From And just hearing more about it has done nothing but deepen my admiration for the work you do and the and fondness for the work you do as well from your own journey and the courage is a word that comes up in my head a lot when I'm thinking about the work you're doing not just stubbornness that's for sure (laughs) but to go on the journey to believe in something so profoundly to build something that's being impactful across the United Kingdom and I am willing to bet extends in, in an inspiring way beyond these shores is really remarkable so really Big pleasure to have this time to sit and have a wee chat with you. I appreciate the time to do that. And, you know, thank you for the work that that you're doing 
I wondered if there's a place that you would like to direct people. We're going to link up a lot of what you've spoken about in the show notes. I kind of I also want to link up the YouTube video of you that first ITN interview. <laughs> that would be fun. I, you might least, not agree. My family at the beginning just were like, oh, you said less ums this time. Like that's how <laughs> the, the journey of my media career have gone is like my family counting my ums. I think that is also a Glaswegian thing to go. Um, mm, um, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> But for those who have enjoyed your story and, and want to learn a bit more, you know, what ways can people support you? What is the what is the best way for people to support you, contact you? What do you need resource wise? So the the Streetbet website is um, streetbet.org.uk. Various ways to support is that we have an Amazon wish list for every location. So if people feel like they want to be a specific something for a dog or a cat they can do it that way we've obviously got um just giving and a golden giving platform for um one off or um regular donations what's the address of the just giving platform oh now you're asking me i might have to send that to you That's right. we'll <laughs> no, it's linked on the website when you go in to donate but um i don't know it off the top of my head and then yeah i guess the other ways is about yeah get involved so if you own a practice and you want to say to us that if we have a case in your area, then you would be happy to to see it for us. Then that's brilliant because of the hostel scheme, we're going to be hopefully in other areas as well. If you're a vet or a nurse and you want to volunteer, then you can do that through the website as well. And we've also got people that are getting involved in non-clinical capacity, helping us centrally as well. So yeah, all of those ways. We've got Christmas cards coming out, which I'm very excited about because I'm never organized when it comes to Christmas and I am this time everyone's going to be quite shocked at so yeah and yeah just before we go just to mention we've got our conference coming up on October the 22nd which is our chance to well it's called the art of street betting so it's usually about all things street bet and um, we have an inspirational speaker as well and we also I'm not telling you who it is because it's a surprise um but also just as a thank you to everybody who helps and supports street bet brilliant whereabouts is that and they, i guess they can book tickets to go there on the website it is in london and it is for volunteers so it's not open oh, so and there's just, usually a waiting list oh my goodness me so you've got to be in it to win it indeed one of the perks of street betting you get to come to conference and it's free i love it and you also i think are in possession of one of if not the coolest logo in veterinary medicine <laughs> i love it it's brilliant Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, Jed, thank you for your time. This was uh, a big pleasure for me. And um, yeah, maybe we'll keep in touch and uh, love to maybe learn. Maybe I'll how get you that. out in the street. Ah, well, stranger things would have happened. I don't know exactly where happened. you are. I am in Brighton. Oh, so there's, there's no, no excuse. <laughs> no shortage of people that could benefit no, from that. No, a team that go out once a month in Brighton. So. I would actually love that, Jed. I'd absolutely love that. Yeah. Have you seen um, Hercule von Van Winkle? I have not. <laughs> and this is like, so this uh, artist? Yes. Got to be an artist with that name. Yeah. So, well, he's not an artist. He's an estate agent. And he randomly drew a picture of his parents' dog as a joke in lockdown and posted it on social media and was like, this is £299. And then he just got inundated with people going, can you please draw my dog? So he went from like taking the piss 
to he's now got entirely an alter ego, which is Hercule von Van Winkle. Please look him up. He lives in your hometown. And in the space of lockdown, he has raised £100,000 for a homeless charity in Brighton called Turning Tides. He's got a book now. And I met him because I just saw his work and it used to make me piss myself. So I contacted him and I was like, please, can you do something for Street Vet? I'm delighted to say he did. He earned us £6,500 in a week. And he's now about to start raising money for Street Vet as well as as Turning Tides. I mean, I've just had him on the QT because this is not going to go out for a while, drawing Paul O'Grady's dogs for me. But yeah, he had asked. <laughs> I'm looking at his Instagram. Are you loving so. it? Is that Hercule von yeah, Wolf, if you, Wolfwinkle? Yeah, that's one. Okay. And then he, he like makes up the names of the animals he makes up like what they like, what they don't like. And then um, he writes a scathing report from the customer. And so basically nobody buys them. What they do is they just make a donation and they put their photos into his inbox. And he's got, I mean, I think he said 10,000 in his inbox and he just randomly picks them and does them when he gets home from work. I love him. Anyway, he's in Brighton and he will be doing an outreach probably with the Brighton team to do some drawings of the street vet patients. So you should be right. long for that one. Sounds brilliant because we can bring the team from VetX and cover that on social media as well. He's, and, a, uh, he's just the nicest guy and he's super funny. Okay. So I'm feeling like an invitation required because that's sounding like another podcast guest to me. <laughs> oh my God, he's amazing. I love him. All right. Brilliant. Jade, awesome to spend time with you. I look forward to, yeah, I mean, working more. I'd love to love to help you guys a bit more with Street Vet and, uh, you know, make our resources available to you as well. So th- thank you for the work you do. Thank you for the time. And uh, I can't wait to see where the journey takes you from here. Me too. <laughs> thank you for having me. again folks just me before you jump off i wanted to say a huge thank you to today's guest dr jade stat wasn't she awesome and just a final shout out if you can support the work of street vet then please do that that address again to go check it out is streetvet.org.uk if you've enjoyed this episode then please do share it with your friends and don't forget to leave us a review on itunes Until next time, friends, be safe, be well, and be happy.